questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thanks for listening. Our guest on today's podcast is Dr. Jim Wilder. Now, for decades, he's been delving into biblical scripture, spiritual formation, and brain science. Now, these studies have led to the development of a unique model of spiritual and psychological maturation. Now, Dr. Wilder has been training leaders and counselors for over 27 years and is the author of many books with a strong focus on maturing and relationship skills for leaders. His co-authored book, Living from the Heart Jesus Gave You, has sold over 100,000 copies in 11 languages. A renowned neurotheologian, Dr. Wilder and Michael spent a fascinating hour discussing the connection and integration of science, neurology, psychology, and God. So buckle up, it's going to be a wild ride. Now, without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Dr. Jim Wilder, thank you for coming down from Evergreen, Colorado to our offices here and being on the podcast. It's great to be with you, Michael. Let's just jump right in. We've had a fair amount of chit-chat, and I'm familiar with your books. You're a prolific author. What is a neurotheologian, as you call yourself? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it's this combination of trying to figure out from God's creation, how did he design the brain? And then from uh, Scripture and uh, Christian thought, what is the best way to operate? Uh, So, you know, now we know what the brain is, how it works. The software or whatever you're supposed to run in it, the values that you're supposed to use to make it work, they're going to come from theology. So whenever we find an intersection— the brain seems to be designed for something, and then theology says this is what you're supposed to do with it. It's very interesting from a neurotheological perspective. How did you first get exposed to the neurological approach? In your clinical training, or was it after that? Well, I had originally wanted to be a medical doctor, so biology was my my fascination from probably about age 10 on. So I was very interested in, in anything physical. I remember I think probably age 12, I was drawing diagrams of the 12 cranial nerves and how wow. they're connected. And just for fun. Just for fun. This is kind of stuff that fascinated me and very much interested in um, scientists that had cured diseases like anthrax and sheep and stuff like that. How did you go about solving those problems? Um and then I happened uh, to have this experience where I had asked God, uh, you know, encountered somebody who was actually in psychological trauma. I didn't know it. And I said, God help. And, and I saw their eyes open and their, make a change. So uh, right about the time I was starting college, I switched over to psychology to figure out what was going on there. Then when I got to graduate school, my professor was one of the ones who had invented the EEG machine for brainwaves, discovered the existence of brainwaves. Wow. And 
he was the first neurotheologian I met. He was like, okay, here's the brain, here's how it operates. Now, where does God engage with the brain was the question he would wow. ask in class. What and year would have this been? This would have been 1967. Wow. Yeah. What, what can I ask the no, name I'm of it? Sorry, eighty-seven. Eighty-seven. That's yeah. right, because you said you were uh, your doctorate at Fuller in the eighties, the yeah. early eighties. Mm-hmm. What professor was that? Uh, Doctor Lee Edward Travis. Wow. And the building at Fuller at the seminary is named after him, the Travis Auditorium. So I've been in that auditorium. <laughs> yeah. But he was making the connection back then. Yes. And at that point, uh, you know, technical point, he was uh, saying, well, it must be the reticular activating system is where God engages, because that's what makes you conscious of various things. Um, but where we've gone since then is that, you know, there's things that happen in the brain before you're even conscious. And now I'm of the school that thinks that God's involved in helping bring things to consciousness uh, even before the conscious part of the brain engages. So Christians are famous for, at least in the mental health field, either being on kind of two sides of the extreme. One is just prescribed Bible verses, Mm -hmm. and then there's this, let's just kind of copy what the secular world is doing and then baptize it and call it Christian. And my experience— the Egyptians, they call it. (laughs) Yes. My experience is that there's there's not been a lot of people that are doing the kind of deep thinking that you have done where you're truly integrating, not just using that word, but asking the question, like, what are the questions the Bible is asking, and and looking at science and neurology and psychology. Talk to me about how that um, integration emerged and how it led to your life model. Yeah, well, going back again to the uh, early uh, 70s, one of the progressive churches in California had formed a counseling center where they're trying to help the kids who are out on the street and people with drugs and stuff like that. And I got a chance to intern there where Jane Willard, who is married to Dallas Willard, was one of my early trainers. And so from that perspective, we're trying to fit Christian thought with the practical questions of life. Well, as soon as you had somebody with a problem, all of a sudden it seems everybody's solution digressed. So uh, from a psychological perspective, the school was sort of, uh, you pick whatever works from whatever uh, field. And so we had people with trauma. Now with trauma, you were supposed to handle them delicately and uh, affirm them and all that sort of stuff. And the people with trauma also had sex addic- and drug addictions. And the Minnesota model then says you get in their face and you confront them and tell them you're going to die. And so one hand, you don't confront this person at all. On the other hand, you confront them consistently. And then another school was saying, well, it's all demonic. So you have to cast all of these uh, demons out and another point. School is it was dissociative, so it's not all demons. You've got different parts of their mind, and uh, and then we had the people. They had children, and so now we're trying to raise children, and that's a completely different model. And then they're in their marriages, and the marriage model is completely none of these things work together. Uh, and so when we stopped and had a look, we said, you know, what we're trying to do is get everyone to grow up to be mature and look like. Jesus at every age in their life. So there should be a unified model for what life should look like. 
It should be the same model you use for it's finding a brain tumor or figuring out what you need for uh, medication. It should be the same thing you do for planting a church. Wow, that's gonna that's gonna push some people out of their chair and go, "What does that mean?" Yeah, well, a church is a multi generational community of people who are trying to look like Jesus. And then there's all these things that go wrong, which can go down to the level of, you know, are you depressed and you need a medication? Because uh, all these people are coming from churches. And how each of those people are functioning from the leadership on down. Mm-hmm. They're all neurological beings. And as you and I well know, that uh, leaders are not immune to all of those issues. No, as a matter of fact, the pressure and the position, position they're in actually makes the issues more likely to show up in their lives. So keep going with uh, with yeah. the life model. So what we decided uh, then was we're going to gather people. We gathered about 30 people from different uh, fields and different points of view and said, you know, tell us what's working. Because if we'd look at an overlap of all the things that work, uh, and I might say, Michael, there's a big difference between things that work and how we explain the way they work. Indeed. Mm-hmm. So the explanations are all completely different. Uh, but the, you know, what's working is always in people's lives, and the fruit that we're looking at is very comparable. So, sort of like, let's discard all of the existing explanations for a while and try to see. What are the things that all these have in common, what's working? And when it came down to it, it turns out it's human brains that have to be taught how they how to do all these different things. And so uh, now the question that we had was a lot of the things that were being taught are very culturally dependent. So if you're in this particular culture, and you might let me say that uh, – one Christian group from another varies a lot by culture and language. And you know that firsthand from growing up in South America. Yeah. And from, uh, you know, whenever we came back to the United States, we'd go from one church to another. So we were in all these different kinds of churches. Uh, and the cultures inside were very, very different. But they're all saying, you know, we're serving the same God and the same principle and, the you know, but they're very different. So if you trying to take some of that cultural language off the top and what is it you have to learn and when do you learn it and how does that work? That's what we were trying to figure out together so that it would actually have the best uh, brain science, but you wouldn't need to have to have a Western culture to understand the way it works. Which is fascinating because the scriptures didn't come out of a Western culture and the Hebrew uh, worldview, if you will, is far more holistic, which I want to ask you about, mm-hmm. than the Greek or rational idea. Yeah. And so what this allowed us to do is avoid the reductionism while still having the science. How rare to get 30-ish people together and to even be able to say, let's let go of all of our explanations. If we just did that in the U.S. today with race and politics and stepped back and said, let's look at what the problems are and kind of begin again thinking about this, that sounds like a really hopeful but rare thing. I think it it is. And it was actually uh, one of the funny things that would happen to us is we would get calls from people. And uh, we'd, people we'd never heard from before, we had no idea who they are, and they said, 
Uh, I feel that God's telling me I should call you folks, um, and I'm not sure why, uh, and I'm not even sure who you are. And um, I would say, well, well, why are you calling? Well, they said, I feel like I have a part of something, hmm. and I'm supposed to bring this. It's part of what it means to be Christian and, and whole, but I, I don't know how it fits. Does that mean anything to you? And we would say, yes, actually, we've been praying that the parts of this would come together, and you wow. must have one of them. So come on down, and let's find out what you got. And one of the things that's different about the life model and what you write about in your new book, Renovated, is that rather than uh, – I, I do not like the word eclectic because it's like this doctor kit, and you reach into that bag at any given time, and you pull out this uh, instrument or that instrument. And mm-hmm. so eclectic is I kind of do whatever works, and then a person will say, and I integrate all those together. But the life model truly is where you've taken – what works and what is true, and by that I don't mean propositionally true, and you've put it together into a really cohesive faction. So can you talk about the elements of that that emerged after this uh, kind of initiation with these thinkers and practitioners? Yes, I'd have to agree with you about the eclectic part. I've always pictured as as a prospector with a mule who hangs one more thing on his mule, and it all work, walks together, and you use it for some purpose. But there's nothing inherently that makes that you know a whole or a coherent something. So the um, yeah, back to your question, clarify. Are, are you now, or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? <laughs> Again. I was I was raised in a, a, a common purse uh, Christian community, so if that's that close enough. Close, <laughs> well, yeah, again, we're we're pink. of the generation where people are going, "What's he talking about, <laughs> Vladimir Putin or something?" Yeah. Uh, no, just what are the different elements of the life model that are central to it? Yeah, well, it's probably three. Then one is that. Uh, Human beings exist in a multi-generational community, and it takes at least four generations to make a functioning community. So that's part of this multi-generational life. There's something we hand on from one generation to the to another uh, when we're in a properly attached relationship to each other that just doesn't come any other way. Um, that's, I think, why God doesn't just pull everyone who believes out of the world and as soon as they do go, okay, we got you. You made the right statement, the right confession, you know, we're, we got you out of that mess. Uh, the second part is, uh, that the brain has to learn how to be human. So there's some relational brain skill abilities that, uh, are absolutely inherent to how your brain works and if you try to even uh, think with God or uh, relate with other people and you're missing these abilities something isn't going to work for you you're going to have a chronic failure because you you don't know how to do one of the and, and we've counted from the brain science side 19 of them that are absolutely essential and then the third element is that this is a life of mutual mind with God, and the less we're thinking with God as we're going along, uh, we don't raise above the level of normal human, uh, the best that you can be by normal human. Uh, you have to add something that's actually an active ingredient coming from God. And of the three, that's the most contested. 
your first chapter in Renovated is salvation as attachment. So that that brings back this idea of the something from God. Speak a little bit about how salvation is attachment or a new attachment. Yeah. Well, as Dallas and I were talking about um, maturity, the interest, part of his idea is that uh, salvation shouldn't be what uh, just gets you out of a bad end to life. You know, it's, salvation isn't just uh, like a ticket to heaven instead of someplace Fire else. insurance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it should actually be saving you as you go along by that, that active sense of salvation. It's like, this is what's keeping me from being a lousy human being. Um, and so uh, as we were, we were talking about that, the problem is that most of the Christian solutions come down to ideas we put into our conscious mind. But from a brain perspective, you have the, a very fast system in your brain that's most predominantly on the right side that determines your identity and your character. And it always runs faster than your conscious mind. So we're always consciously catching up with a reaction we've already had inside, and we're going... Oh crap. You know, I didn't, shouldn't have that reaction. And then we try to think, well, here's what I'll think differently so that won't happen. But thinking differently always runs too slow. So the other reaction is always coming out. So you're, you're, you're describing the process of trying to use the left brain to impact the right brain. And it fundamentally can't work. Yeah. It's just not engineered that way. Jim, can you take a minute? Attachment is what gets you into that fast circuit. Yeah, because attachment develops, the right brain develops earliest, mm-hmm. and that therefore it's more core to who we are in our right. personhood. Can you take a minute and just kind of walk through the left brain, right brain distinction? Because a lot of people think of that in term, terms of, you know, left brain is accounting and right brain is painting. But it's so much more than that, yeah. including the right brain is the spiritual mediator. Yeah, that, that, that's a stereotype that got stuck into culture about 30, 40 years ago, uh, maybe a little more. And it's kind of fun, but it's not how it actually works. Uh, so the, the right brain dominant. And so first thing we want to notice is that word because the brain is dominant on the right side doesn't mean everything gets done on the right side. It's just that's who's running the operation. So on the, right side of the brain, things run at about six cycles per second. Um, so six, six times per second, your brain figures out, who am I right now in this circumstance? That's what it's looking. What is Who am I right now, and what is it like me to do? Uh, on the left side, the conscious mind uh, runs at five cycles per second, and five times per second, it figures out... Uh, What's going on uh, in terms of my explanation? How do I explain what's happening? So if you do the math, it's the six times per second is always running too fast for the conscious mind to catch up with. Not by a whole lot, but enough that we can't really watch it. And so uh, words and explanations and sequences all run at conscious speed, and they're all over-focused. That is, you always have to pick out a detail at the expense of the big picture. Hmm. The fast side of the brain is always looking at the big picture, and it'll tell you which attention detail you should think about more. But 
it doesn't really stop to look at that. It sends that out to the the detail-oriented left side. So um, when we start thinking that Christianity is all about believing the right things, we've now reduced it to detail. And, you know, we get a mystery like uh, the Trinity or the nature of God. If you reduce that all to explanations that make sense to you, you have lost most of what it means to be God because it's, you know, it's bigger, much bigger than that. So our character, on the other hand, is running on this fast track. And it lets only the people, it's sort of like a firewall in your brain. The only people can tamper with my identity are the people that care about me and love me and have a enduring attachment to me. So when Jesus says to the disciples in the upper room, um, from now on, the Father and I will not reveal ourselves to anybody, just only to those who love us or are attached to us. And uh, so Judas, not Iscariot, is like, why? What's what's that all about? Hmm. It's it's you know Jesus is saying no attachment is going to be our way of communicating from this day on. Wow! And if you're not attached, you won't be hearing from us. And uh, you know that tells me that from now on, God's going to communicate to this fast track, to this identity system, which is formed by who you love. I just want to interject. There might be listeners at this point that go, "Okay, what?" translation or paraphrase of the Bible is Dr. Jim Wilder reading from, but it really is there. If you look at the Old Testament, the New Testament, and especially so many of Jesus' conversations and teaching, it really is all about that. So you mentioned uh, Judas in the upper room and Jesus saying, this is how it's going to be. After that's all over, he gives his last sermon, and it's vine and branch. Mm-hmm. Boom. It's attachment. It's it's all about a connection that's organic. It has to be cultivated, but it's there. So I just think it's beautiful how you're, you know, this is just kind of rolling off your tongue and out of your left and right brain, but it really is there in the scriptures that this is not just science that you took and threw some scripture on it. Uh, I've really worked hard to avoid doing that sort of proof def- texting, you know, there's a bit of science that proves what I believe, or the other way around, here's a scripture that, you know, if you take this verse, then you got to believe my science. Really, the question is, do they harmonize together? When you look at it from both perspectives, does it make complete sense? And where that happens, uh, another example of that one you might say is, um, uh, I was up on the top of Mount Langley, which is the second highest mountain in the 48 states. And I'd taken a youth group up there, and we're looking around. Now, when I was two, I had a stroke, and I was not supposed to get out of a wheelchair, and I was supposed to be uh, mentally deficient. And so I'm up on the top of Mount Langley, and I obviously got there without a wheelchair, and I had a Ph.D., so I'm thinking I'm probably, you know, neither of those things happened, which I attribute to prayer among primary reason why this has happened. And so up there I said to God, I want an explanation for the people that seems no one can help. And, you know, there's people that just were not responding to either what Dallas was teaching for spiritual formation or what we were doing for therapy. And 
Very soon after that, we came across the brain science of joy. Hmm. Uh, and uh, Dick, it was Dr. Alan Shore from UCLA was saying, you know, what stimulates the brain to grow is joy, and joy is relational. It's who is glad to be with you, who smiles at you, uh, who connects with you, and the, this is the most powerful influence in your brain is this response to joy. Uh, so, you know, I started doing the math. Yeah, you know, every pastor I've had to work with who fell into sexual sin had let their joy get low. And it's the person who came along that had some joy, was glad to be with them. It's like, boom, I find that irresistible. Uh, that makes sense. Addictions, they made sense in terms of here's a, if people aren't joyful, uh, here's the substances and experiences that make me feel good. Um, and in terms of looking at babies and mothers together, yeah, the ones that do really well are the high joy babies and high joy mothers. This is all making sense. Then I asked myself the question, is joy anywhere in the Bible? Just I mean, a little bit. Yeah, but actually, you know, I'm an, by that point, I'm an ordained minister. I've got a, you know, degree in theology. I've spent 35 years in the church. I never heard of it being particularly important. It's sort of like a maraschino cherry on the end of your, you know, <laughs> dessert. If everything goes well. You get a little joy with it. But, uh, in fact, most people said, uh, you know, joy is sort of this mysterious spiritual something or another that you can't really get as a human being, but God might give you some. So this idea it's relational is completely. And a central part of God's oh. very being. And, yeah. I, and I don't want to cheapen it by saying it's an aspect of his nature because his whole nature is all woven together, you know, joy. and But keep going. Yeah. So I really had to stop, and I said, I'm going to have to look back in the Bible and see if it's in there. And then I'm going along this last uh, discourse of Jesus there just before the crucifixion, and he said, uh, you know, the disciples say to him, oh, for the first time he's actually speaking clearly to us instead of parables. He's telling us what's really going on. And then he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy might be in you, and that your joy might be the fullest or the largest joy possible. Now, I put that back in the context of the brain. That's what I just heard of the brain was designed for. And that is what made a brain function really well was to have this relational joy and the strongest joy possible. I said, wow, if that's why he's teaching, why did it take me, you know, 40 years of spiritual life to actually discover that joy was central, not just some rare uh, dessert you got later on. I think that goes back to the idea that um, you can't manufacture or create joy with the left brain. Mm -hmm. uh, it has to emerge out of the right brain. So I want to come back to this because uh, it, it's really the thread through all of what you do. You said earlier, and I thought this was fascinating, uh, that the brain needs to be taught how to be human. Unpack mm -hmm. what you meant by that, and then um, just continue on with the, the left and right. And I won't throw more questions at you, because I'm famous for giving like five questions at once. <laughs> All right, because I'll forget the other questions if you do anyway. When the brain is, is born, it's already pre-wired to look for faces. If you can put any kind of target in front of a baby's eyes and they will pick a face as the one they want to look at the most. And if they can look at any part of the face, they'll look at the eyes. 
And if they look at any uh, eyes, they will look at the left eye. And it turns out that the there are about 200 muscles around the left eye that convey joy. Your brain has two kinds of joy centers. One is in the center, which is a spontaneous relational joy. I'm glad to see you. And the other is on the outside of your brain in the cortex, and it's uh, the smile for the camera kind of smile. So joy is actually a response to someone is looking at me, and they're glad that I'm there. And based around that simple experience, by the time the baby is five months old, it has discovered that there is a mind behind the face it's looking at, and that mind has thoughts and impressions. And if it follows what that other mind is doing, uh, Hebb's principle, which is the things that fire together, wire together, it will actually learn to develop exactly the same brain circuits that that other brain is using uh, that work together in the same ways and create the same chemistry. And basically, what you have is all these spare parts in the brain running around, and the ones that get used are the ones that get strengthened. And baby spends half of its time asleep up until two and a half years old, just rehearsing these things that it learned when it was awake, building those circuits stronger. Then at four years of age, it goes through and it deletes all the things it didn't use. And that's how you end up with an accent if you learn a language later on because mm. the, the brain cells that you needed for that language but didn't use, the brain deleted them. So now you've actually got a brain that's been shaped to run and think and operate and speak the, according to the brains it duplicated. Uh, my, my wife and I were over in Hungary and all these little Hungarian children talking Hungarian. It's like, you know, look at how they talk Hungarian. And there's a joke, uh, which is more true than you'd hope, that you can only speak Hungarian if you were born there. You know, it's like you really have to shape your brain this way or it, you can't do it. Mm -hmm. uh, but they were doing it, you know, three and four years old, and, and we couldn't pull off a word of Hungarian hardly, you know. So it's that kind of very powerful shaping thing that develops not only language but also identity and character we yeah, become so, like the ones we duplicate. So take that uh, developmental uh, theory and information and your analogy with language and now drop that into our relationship with God. That um, rather than just Bible verses, which is left brain, and there, that's important, obviously, mm -hmm. to give us a, a context and a foundation, that if we have God – who is looking upon us and has joy, that that's formative of something other than just our intellect. Yeah, it's formative for our for our character. Now, the, the language side is very good for error detection. So if you want to know uh, how you're not operating the way that God told you to, uh, language will really help you identify your errors. But if Give you, me an example. Um, you shall not uh, covet... Um, so if I'm coveting, uh-oh, this isn't how God designed me. Okay. Right? Uh, you shall not lie to one another. Okay, well, I'm lying. So you can pick, figure those out. But now who do I become if I don't lie? Ah, now there is the attachment question. Who will I become like? And just to clarify, you're using the word character several times um, as right brain. And I think most people think of character as uh, – 
I do these things, therefore I'm a good person, or I do bad things and I'm not a good person. So just uh, will you clarify that? So the uh, one of the things that Dallas Willard used to talk about was loving our enemies. So he said uh, instead of sin management, which is we try not to hate our enemies, uh, is your first spontaneous reaction love to your enemies or is it not? That's character, whatever your spontaneous first response is. Um, Character is not really quite the same as identity because we can develop our character incorrectly. And so define the difference or contrast the difference between character and identity. So the question of who are you going to be in 500 years is a good way to think of identity. 500 years from now, which takes us out past, uh, you know, the our life expectancy, if we are with God, what will be our spontaneous thoughts and reactions and stuff like that? Because for eternity, you're going to be developing the true you. The problem is that your brain is made up of mirror neurons, and mirror neurons respond to how other people see you. So actually, your brain can't perceive its own self directly in the identity system. It sees how other people see us. And so, yeah, well, here's for example. Uh, I was considered um, one of the dumbest kids in school because I couldn't spell. By spelling is to this day not really all the best. And so, in fact, uh, when I was young, it was atrocious. Uh, and so uh, all the other kids in school determined, and the teachers pretty much as well, that, you know, this is not a very bright kid. Um, and uh, my family was sort of the same opinion. My uh, my parents would say to me, well, you're not really going to make it into college. You're not as bright as the rest of the family. And mm-hmm. so my identity then was I, I'm the dumb, the dumb kid around. Uh, so when I went to college, actually, somewhat by mistake, uh, the one of my professors said to me, you know, looking at your stuff here, you, you might want to consider being a writer. And I told him, no, I could never be a writer. I can't spell. And he looked at me like, uh, I don't know what that's got to do with it. But, uh, <laughs> you know, someone saw a writer in me and 18 books later, it's, you know, had that never been seen. And a PhD. Yeah. And a PhD and these other things. So, uh, now the question is, when people come to see me as a counselor, most of them were people that their parents didn't like too well, right? But when I saw them as delightful people that, you know, were just developing these characteristics their family were not too fond of or weren't familiar with, they grew something crazy, hmm. You know, and so this ability to see in the other person what it is that should be growing there. If that's what God is all about, if that's what identity is about, we've got a lot of mistakes about our identity that we have going into life as adults. But the spiritual forces, the people who see us in us what God is growing, are able to actually, through these mirror neurons, wake up parts of our identity that we didn't even know were there, but they look much more like what God wanted to bring out. So my idea is in a community— we're waking up in each other what God wants to grow, nurturing it, and we actually, you know, our character begins to be like this, you know, to match our true identity over time. 
because usually starting out, it's a pretty bad match. I've been annoyed over the years, especially uh, when I was in the thick of my addictions years ago, and people would just say, well, your identity is in Christ, and you just need to understand that. And it's very much a left-brain idea. Yeah. How do we begin to internalize that with the with the life model and in your book, Renovated? Um, it's all about uh, this believing in Christianity versus a with-God life, or the distinction that you make and Dallas Willard made between uh, just being a believer and a disciple. So can you put some kind of big hooks on uh, what it looks like to move from being unhealthy to healthy and and character formed like Christ? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, I'd say that, again, we go back to the three characteristics of the, of the life model at this point, and that is – if you're missing some of the basic uh, relational skills the brain needs to to have, uh, it's going to be very hard to do that because you won't understand what a relational being is like. So, uh, one of the you know two basic skills, for instance, are to be able to res- respond with joy, and um, you probably have noticed yourself that the parts of the world where the troubles are the worst are very low joy environments. And so if you haven't learned a way of joy, uh, the first thing your brain thinks of is that joy is a blessed miracle that might come across every once in a while like rain in the desert as opposed to as a, a normal way of life. So we have to learn to, that that's the normal. That's a brain thing you have to learn. Uh, but then the second thing you need to know is that Learning how to be human has human models, so there's other people I can I can learn from. So, being part of that human community, those are just those lower level things. But then, your brain has to learn the third thing is to recognize a thought from God when it goes through your head. One of the things I've discovered over the years is God is constantly giving thoughts to everybody, but most people don't bother to notice them. Hmm. It goes through their head, but it's like that wasn't important. They don't recognize the voice. They don't recognize the source. And when you have God talking to you, there's a very peculiar effect. And that is, if you stop and notice it, it strikes you as deeply true in a way that just makes you quiet and peaceful inside. Like, oh, that fit things together in a way, you know. Uh, I remember talking to one person who was very, very uh, racially prejudiced. And so I was just teaching him to stop and um, listen to God's thoughts. And after one of these times when he stopped and listened to God's thoughts, he came running up to me. He said, you know what? God just told me that I have been a fool. Hmm. He said, now, if you had told me that, I would never have taken that from you. But he did it without hurting my feelings. It just when he said to me, it felt really true. I understood it. I looked at it and go, yeah, that, that is foolish. That isn't what I should be doing. And it changed his entire perspective around, uh, even though it was a correction, uh, in a way, and it, I could see it within minutes. He was treating other people differently. Wow. Yeah. So these are the kinds of things we want to have uh, informing who we really are mm-hmm. and, and allowing that to be corrected 
then your brain has can remember that and it helps you the next time. You talked about that in Renovated as well, this idea of correction. Mm-hmm. You didn't write this phrase, but we live in this culture where everybody gets a trophy and, you know, everything is okay and not everything is okay. You know, if you bang your head against the wall, you're, you're going to get brain damage. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the correction, um, very consistent with Jesus as the revelation of God, it's with kindness and it's always speaking to something that's true as opposed to something that's not true. Like you're never going to go to college and your spelling problem, you know, it's impossible for you to be a writer. Yeah, the uh, the the thing that com- sort of complicates it is your brain actually has a correction circuit in it, uh, and it only corrects itself if it feels something is sort of unpleasant or painful. And the correction circuit is called shame. Uh, now, most of the time, shame in our culture is so toxic that it just only tells you what's wrong with you. And that'll, that's just really debilitating. But, um, shame when it's used healthy way is said, that's not you. This is you. And so it, it, it points you directly in the right direction. So when, uh, Paul is talking to Titus, he says, now teach the older women not to be diabolos. Uh, devils. <laughs> devils. Yes. And accusers is the word. Accuser is somebody who says everything that you did wrong is the real you. Uh, and you have to learn that your, if your culture is used to doing that, you have to switch that around so you can say, well, that's not the real you. Here's the real you. You know, Paul says in former times, some of you were thieves, but now you have learned to work with your hands and have something good to give to other people. So instead of being someone that's taking from others, your same hands are using, you know, creating something to give to others. So that that's a good shame message. It says, that's not you. Here's the real you. When those so, things happen together, now we've got some growth happening. I'm so glad you brought up the topic of shame because, uh, and honestly, I struggled with this in the book, but I'm chewing on it. I've taught uh, kind of the classic definition of shame psychologically, distinction between guilt and shame, guilt as I've, I've mm-hmm. done bad, shame as I am bad. And I've, I've, uh, played with the language a lot. There's, there's people that talk about legitimate shame and illegitimate shame or toxic shame and healthy shame. Um, but I, I, I think I'm gravitating back toward this idea that there's shame that actually reveals the and or the more that, uh, by definition of saying, this is what I feel. That's actually implicitly saying there's something to you beyond this. You're better than this, if you will. It feels dangerous, though, if we don't have the voice speaking what's true and if, we, if we're if we not seen. Oh, yes. Uh, your brain will go into toxic shape uh, if you go more than 90 seconds without the what's true to begin with. And to also just help with this particular discussion or make it worse, whichever the case may <laughs> right. be. Right. The left hemisphere shame is different than the right hemisphere shame. Interesting. The right hemisphere shame is one that you get in response to someone's face sort of dropping like, oh, my goodness. Uh, it's That's not making me happy. Uh, and that's a very common experience. You know, we if we bring somebody sorrow instead of joy, we should respond with feeling like, oh, that wasn't right. That wasn't what I was hoping for. Left hemisphere shame is always secondary to a thought. 
That's the difference, an idea. So the idea that I'm no good, the feeling that follows that, follows a thought. And every time you strengthen a left hemisphere motion, you increase the error. Whereas the right hemisphere motion, well, that didn't bring you joy, raises the question, well, what would actually make our relationship better? So the left side is always dangerous. And when you're running conscious thought, that's, you know, it never helps. So, so when, you're absolutely right. But the other side, the right hemisphere side, is secured by an attachment. That is, well, that didn't make me very happy, but we're still together. I'm here with you, and I will help us have a good relationship in spite of it. That is the side we're looking for. To like the man who said, God said, you're acting like a fool, and he could hear that because of the safety that he had known and experienced, and then it became something that you use the word correction, but I think of it as life-giving, mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, that he withered or collapsed and fell in on himself. So when Romans, I like to quote this because we all know the verse in Romans where it says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. And then the next verse says, for anyone who trusts will never be put to shame. That would be the left brain shame? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's really, really helpful. You talk about wholeness so much because this this maturity, this character is being a whole person. And you made the statement that I loved that wholeness doesn't happen quickly and that it takes a lot longer than we think to get there. So first, what is wholeness and why does it take so long? Well, I think it'd be safe to say there's two reasons it takes so long. One is it's always intended to be. So if you had a baby that was born and three days later they're fully 70 years old in every way, you'd go, oh, man, this is completely wrong. <laughs> Point well taken. Benjamin yeah. Button. Yeah. Or kind of. <laughs> Whatever it is, right? We were meant to actually be eternal beings. And as far as uh, I can tell, this growth potential is always there. It doesn't get freeze-dried at some point. So we're going to grow into eternity. Yeah. So a lot of times I hear people going, well, when I'm, you know, when I'm in heaven, the minute I die and I'm with Jesus, they quote, when we see him, we will be like him. We're perfect, you know, and we, but this unpacking and becoming will be eternal. That's how I read the text. Uh, And uh, first of all, I think it might be rather boring if we just never learned a whole (laughs) thing. Uh, well, how do we explore all of this? God's got to be enormously diverse, complex, and interesting. And so there must be some room there. But also, if you just read the text in Revelation of what's life on in heaven, there's this interaction. They're asking questions. They're looking at things. They're, they're teaching things uh, to each other. The elders come over and talk to John and explain things to him because that seems to be a normal function up there. Hmm. Uh, What's perfect is that those things that have kept us from learning are out of the way, but not that the learning is over. So, right, right. Uh, that's kind of the the long view of it. So that's it's meant to be long. The other part of it is that uh, with with identity, uh, we're sort of uh, Paul says sort of looking in a glass darkly we're trying to figure out what's really going on inside in a way that is you know what's very hard to see 
who we really are inside. And so we're very prone to having lots of mistakes that need to be healed and removed. And so the, this process of we take it's like healing something physical. You take out the glass that's stuck into your hand, and it'll be a while healing back up after that, even though the healing is part of a, a normal process. And and to a great degree, I look at human beings as all having gone through the windshield of life and sin and having our faces full of glass and trying to figure out from that, what should a face look like? You know, they're all pretty mangled. Uh, and it's really hard to construct this idea of what would, if we looked like God meant us to look like. Uh, you know, this to me is one of those moments I was up in the high Sierras backpacking, look, just enjoying those enormous and fantastic trees up there. And I heard uh, uh, God speaking to me rather clearly, more than usual. He said, um, you've never seen a tree. And I'm looking around at these trees, and what are you talking about? He said, these trees are nothing like the trees I created. And I knew he wasn't talking about trees. Uh, and I thought about it. Yeah, I when I look at other human beings, uh, I see some that I admire a lot. But there's none of them that were just the way he was. we were created. And so together we're looking into that mystery. Hmm. We accompany each other on that. We resonate with, yeah, I can see in there what you just said God saw. And it helps our brain to grow. So the, the mystery is that if we don't let God see us, we'll never become more than what human beings see. And the other side is if other human beings don't see what God sees, our brain can't really learn that and turn it into something solid. So we need both sides. So wholeness is this place of becoming more and more Christ-like. Is it also an integration of our left and right brains? Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, we would go. I would go even farther than that. So not only do we integrate our left and right brains, but we have to spread out into our whole body because a lot of our nervous system isn't even in our brain. It's connected to our body systems. And then our brain is actually capable of mutual mind with other human beings. So we have a way in which our brain thinks as a group. So our integration is our left and our right brain and our whole body. And then moving out into the group of people that we're connected with and we're thinking with them as well. And that's getting considerably beyond the Western worldview. Right. Good segue to where we started before this interview, and that is talking about the church and community. What is the role of the church and community in this developmental maturation process where it seems like we're just scratching the surface to understand that you can't separate emotional health and spiritual health? What's the role of the church and community? Well, the first thing would be that it actually is a community, it's not an entertainment center. It's not a uh, shopping center for spiritual events. It's it's a community of people who actually are forming uh, a people, a lifelong attachment uh, here that is actually continued into eternity. So this idea that we're forming attachments with other people that are meant to endure for all eternity is quite alien to the way we generally do church. And the the second thing is that we're actually nurturing 
that growth in other people. So one of the things I very often have a chance to do is talk with men who are frustrated with their wives. Um, and I said, well, you read the part about how Christ loved the church, right? They say, yeah, I mean, I have to put up with her all the time. No, I said, you know, the church most of the time doesn't know what who they're supposed to be. So are we people who look at other people say, well, I'm not too surprised that you can malfunction, but I'm here to help you become who you were meant to be. Hmm. Uh, I remember one time my wife was uh, thinking about leaving me. We had a particular rough go of it, and I thought to myself, you know, you never leave your encouragers. So I don't know who she's going to become, but I want to encourage her to become everything that God means her to be. And if I'm her greatest greatest encouragement, rather than trying to control her, I'm going to be a, a source of life. And it's kind of open-ended, because you can't guarantee that's going to turn out well. Hmm. But are we looking at each other as a community and going, you know what? God has you here for a reason, and I'm going to find out what that is, and I'm going to be part of making that come alive. That's how I think of the church as a, as a you know, now it's actually a community. It's a multi-generational community of life intended to not leave the world in the same shape it found it. Well, as we wrap up, I just want to say thank you to you, Jim, for uh, for your stewardship of, uh, despite early on spelling skills and being told you'd <laughs> never go to school, to to take what you learned in your doctorate and your uh, – do you have a divinity degree or theology yeah, degree? I thought so. Yeah. Uh, from Fuller as well. From Fuller So as well, yeah. all of that training and uh, going a, a direction that has been a little bit – well, a lot countercultural within Christianity, and um, it seems as if you've been someone who has been for years laying down tracks that now others are kind of coming along and driving the train on that. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, thanks for writing your most recent book, Renovated, with Nav Press. Subtitle again is God, Dallas Willard, and Churches That Transform, Renovated. Uh, so thanks for being here, and I hope you can come back now that I know you're in Evergreen. Yes, well, I'll be very delighted to do that. Thank you for this time, Michael. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com. RestoringTheSoul.com